up to the 9-11 attacks. This is WJFF Jeffersonville. It's 11 o'clock. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition, with special coverage from NPR News of the 20th anniversary of the attacks of September 11, 2001. This hour, Secretary of Homeland Security Mayorkas on security threats that he sees today. Later, an officer who survived the crash of the plane into the Pentagon and went back to search for others. And the story of the family of Rich Guadagno, who died aboard Flight 93, where passengers fought back against hijackers. His sister Lori went to that field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the plane crashed. I remember looking up to the sky and really pissed off. I said, Rich, if you can hear me, just show me a sign. I need to know you know I'm here. I need to feel you here. And I took one step. First, our newscast at Saturday, September 11, 2021. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. In Shanksville, Pennsylvania, last hour. My mother and flight attendant, Cece Ross Lyles. Ceremonies echoed at Shanksville, Pennsylvania, Ground Zero in New York City, and at the Pentagon, commemorating the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 20 years ago. President Biden is participating in ceremonies at all three sites, as NPR's Asma Khalid reports. President Biden arrived this morning at the New York City Memorial alongside former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Biden will attend two wreath-laying ceremonies, one in Pennsylvania, the other at the Pentagon. The president is not expected to give any formal remarks today, but the White House did release a video message from him. In the battle for the soul of America, unity is our greatest strength. Unity doesn't mean we have to believe the same thing. We must have a fundamental respect and faith in each other and in this nation. The president's calls for unity come at a moment in which the country remains deeply divided over issues of race, culture and COVID. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The only post-9-11 president not in attendance at today's ceremonies is former President Trump, a native New Yorker. And the only president who spoke today is George W. Bush, who presided over the country that day 20 years ago. This past hour, he delivered an address at the crash site in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. He said the unity of America at that time seems distant, and he worries about our nation and our future together. The attacks on the World Trade Center had a lasting impact on the mental health of people in New York City and nearby areas. That's according to research on survivors, rescue and recovery workers, and people who witnessed the attacks. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports a significant number of people are still struggling with symptoms of PTSD and depression. Researchers say that the rates of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder among people in New York City and nearby areas went up shortly after 9-11. While a majority recovered in six months, about 10% have continued to struggle with symptoms. Mark Farfell is the director of the World Trade Center Health Registry, which has tracked over 70,000 people affected by the disaster. This disaster of 9-11 in New York City has had long-term impacts and significant impacts on both 
the responders and the civilian survivors. He says often survivors are struggling with more than one mental and physical health condition, which makes it harder for them to bounce back quickly. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. This is live special coverage from Weekend Edition and NPR News. We're going to go now back to Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Vice President Kamala Harris is speaking. Too many in our nation have deeply felt the passage of time these last 20 years. Every birthday, your loved one missed. Every holiday, every time her favorite team won or his favorite song came on the radio, every time you've tucked in your children or dropped them off at college, you have felt every day, every week, and every year that has passed these 20 years. So please know your nation sees you, and we stand with you, and we support you. We are gathered today on hallowed ground at this place that has been sanctified by sacrifice to honor the heroism that the 40 passengers and crew members showed in the face of grave terrorism. I remember when I first learned about what happened on that fateful flight. What happened on Flight 93 told us then, and it still tells us, so much about the courage of those on board who gave everything they possibly could about the resolve of the first responders who risked everything, and about the resilience of the American people. On this 20th anniversary, on this solemn day of remembrance, we must challenge ourselves, yes, to look back, to remember, for the sake of our children, for the sake of their children, and for that reason, we must also look forward. We must also look toward the future. Because in the end, I do believe that is what the 40 were fighting for. Their future and ours. On the days that followed, September 11, 2001, we were all reminded that unity is possible in America. We were reminded also that unity is imperative in America. It is essential to our shared prosperity, to our national security, and to our standing in the world. And by unity, I don't mean uniformity. We had differences of opinion in 2001, as we do in 2021. And I believe that in America, our diversity is our strength. At the same time, we saw after 9-11 how fear can be used to sow division in our nation. As Sikh and Muslim Americans were targeted because of how they looked or how they worshipped, but we also saw what happens when so many Americans in the spirit of our nation stand in solidarity 
with all people and their fellow American, with those who experience violence and discrimination, when we stand together. And looking back, we remember the vast majority of Americans were unified in purpose to help families heal, to help communities recover, to defend our nation, and to keep us safe. In a time of outright terror, we turned toward each other. In the face of a stranger, we saw a neighbor and a friend. That time reminded us the significance and the strength of our unity as Americans and that it is possible in America. So, moments from now, we will leave this hallowed place, still carrying with us the pain of this loss, this tremendous loss, and still the future will continue to unfold. We will face new challenges, challenges that we could not have seen 20 years ago. We will seize opportunities that were at one time unimaginable. And we know that what lies ahead is not certain. It is never certain. It has never been. But I know this. If we do the hard work of working together as Americans, if we remain united in purpose, we will be prepared for whatever comes next. The 40 passengers and crew members of Flight 93, as we all know, they didn't, they didn't know each other. Most of them didn't know each other. They were different people from different places. They were on that particular flight for different reasons. But they did not focus on what may separate us. No, they focused on what we all share, on the humanity we all share. In a matter of minutes, in the most dire of circumstances, the 40 responded as one. They fought for their own lives and to save the lives of countless others at our nation's capital. After today, it is my hope and prayer that we continue to honor their courage, their conviction, with our own. That we honor their unity by strengthening our common bonds, by strengthening our global partnerships, and by always living out our highest ideals. This work will not be easy, it never has been. And it will take all of us believing in who we are as a nation. And it will take all of us going forth to work together. Thank you all, may God bless you, and may God bless America. Thank you. Vice President Kamala Harris speaking at the ceremonies in Shanksville, Pennsylvania to 
Commemorate the losses of 9-11, September 11, 2001, and specifically there, of course, United Airlines Flight 93. Uh, Forty passengers and crew died uh, after they resisted and fought back against the hijackers of that flight. Uh, we're joined now by White House correspondent Azma Khalid and NPR lead political editor Ron Elving and Scott Detrow, who is in Shanksville. I want to thank all three of you for being with us. And Azma, let me begin with you. What, did, uh, what stood out for you in the vice president's remarks? Well, Scott, it was this appeal to unity. And I will say that is a similar theme to what we heard in the pre-recorded video message that President Biden released yesterday. It's certainly what we heard in former President George W. Bush's remarks. But I also, I guess, interpret in this appeal to unity a kind of indirect reference to the disunity in the country right now. Mm -hmm. You heard this from Kamala Harris, that this reference to if we remain united in purpose will be prepared for whatever comes next, and that in order to honor the memory of the 40 passengers on Flight 93, there needs to be this bond, the strengthening of partnerships, global allies, and people from within, which really seems to me a reference to the fact that there does remain deep divisions in this country 20 years on from September 11th. Uh, and I think, you mm -hmm. know, both Republican and Democrats feel, to some degree, we heard today, a need to, to rectify that situation. And Scott Detrow, um the vice president made a point of mentioning the bigoted reaction that many Americans who were Muslims felt in some of the days following 9-11, didn't she? She did. You know, President Bush had spoken about about speaking out against um, against religious discrimination. And that is something he did do from the White House. He made a point in early September 2001 to stand with Muslim Americans. Certainly lots of people in the country took a different view. And, and that was a story that played out uh, over the coming decades. So that was kind of two different views on the same point. I, w I wanted to say something else about the idea of, of unity and, and the disunity right now. Mm -hmm. That's something that both Vice President Harris and former President Bush spoke about. You know, reporting on Flight 93 over the course of the summer, it came up a lot. The fact that this played out on an airplane, I think, is really significant. Airplanes are some of the peak sites of disunity in this country right now. We yell at each other. We fight over masks. We film each other and post it online. You know, these are people, like, like Vice President Harris said, really didn't know each other. Most of the people on that plane were fi flying by themselves. And the thing I didn't really fully understand until I did this reporting was the first phone call from the plane was at 9.35. Mm -hmm. That's when the passengers first learned okay, something is happening. This is not a normal hijacking. The attack on the cockpit began at 9.45. In a span of 10 minutes, strangers, under the worst circumstances possible, talked to each other, made a plan, and said, okay, we are going to risk our lives, probably lose our lives, and fight back. What a remarkable thing in that, a 10-minute time span, and it feels yeah, so far away. That is utterly remarkable. That is utterly remarkable. And, and Ron Elvin, let me enlist you in this conversation. Uh, the president, this president can't even get every member of his own party in the Senate to support a spending bill. Yes, and, and you know, that 10-minute span in which these people got to know enough about each other to know that they were going to risk their lives or give their lives together, clearly the difference between those 10 minutes and perhaps the 20 years we've had since and, and the years we will have going going forward is that they had a shared realization of the shared threat 
and they could clearly see what they were called upon to do. Now, we have, we have heard it speculated that what it would take to get Americans together today would be perhaps an interplanetary alien threat, you know, something from the movies that would get everyone on Earth or everyone, at least in this country, to feel a common threat in that sense. Mm-hmm. Some people would think that a pandemic would do it. Some people might think that the threat of climate change would make people see their shared fate. And yet that has not been our experience with those issues thus far. Mm-hmm. As Michalid, in, in his... Um prepared remarks that were on video, the president made a point of mentioning unity and invoking that spirit so many Americans felt following the attacks of September 11th, didn't he? America at its best, wasn't that his phrase? Exactly. I mean, there does seem to be this level of a nostalgia that I think we've heard from some of the the people who spoke today, you know, George W. Bush, Kamala Harris, but also from the president himself in these prepared remarks, speaking about the fact that there was this rare moment of national unity. The, the Scott, I am struck by this um, this sort of group recollection that we have of how united the country was 20 years ago, because, you know, I think in the intervening years, you look at some of the consequences, some of the decisions that emanated from that rare blip of unity. And you look at the fact that the decision to go to war in Afghanistan was agreed upon by all but one member of Congress. You look at such unanimity in passing things like the Patriot Act. And I do wonder to some degree the the sense that the unity that we had in that moment had ripple effects and repercussions that actually created or helped create some of the divisions that we see today. And I think that's something that we're all kind of collectively trying to figure out. And uh, Osmond, does there seem to be some some inspiration to President Biden stepping back a little bit from events and letting other people speak today, do you think, and um, letting other people take center stage? You know, the White House says that he was trying to reach and, and visit all three of the September 11th sites today, New York City, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and then, of course, as well, the Pentagon right here outside of Washington, D.C., and that the schedule just didn't allow for prepared remarks of that sort. But I think it's also significant that the person we're hearing from today, prominently, the form, only for, former president, was former President George W. Bush, who was in office that day. Well, thank you very much uh, to our colleagues for joining us. And uh, you are listening to special coverage from Weekend Edition and NPR News. You rely on NPR News and this member station to stay informed, and we rely on your support. Thank you for making this service available to all. Sustain this resource for those who need it most. Support news, local info, and music. Give now at WJFFradio.org. You're listening to special 9-11 20th anniversary coverage from NPR on Radio Catskill. We'll return in a moment. Quick check of the weather. Sunny today with a high of 72. Clear tonight, a low of 56. Mostly sunny tomorrow with a high near 78. We are your public radio station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. You can listen on air, online at WJFFradio.org, on your smartphone with the WJFF app, or on your smart speaker. Just ask it to play WJFF Radio Catskill. It's 1119. With these headlines, President Biden has attended a 9-11 memorial ceremony at Ground Zero in New York City, where the World Trade Center towers fell 20 years ago today. Former Presidents Obama and Clinton were also in attendance. Former President Trump did not attend. 
Former President George W. Bush has delivered remarks in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. He says the national unity displayed 20 years ago seems distant today, and he worries about the country's future. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency is heading to Tehran for talks on reviving the Iran nuclear deal. Rafael Grossi is expected to hold a news conference when he returns to Vienna. I'm Barbara Klein, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the NPR Wine Club, bringing the wine world to people's homes with stories on each bottle and wines inspired by NPR shows like Weekend Edition Merlot. Available to adults 21 years or older at nprwineclub.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting an equitable recovery and the reinvention of systems to create a more just, inclusive, and resilient world. More information is at macfound.org. This is special coverage from Weekend Edition and NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Twenty years ago today, Philip McNair was busy at work in the outer ring of the Pentagon. Forty-seven-year-old Colonel was leading a Tuesday staff meeting when... At 9.37, we heard this tremendous crash. The lights went out in the windowless room. We saw a ripple of fire across the ceiling tiles... And the room started filling up with smoke. Someone tried to open the conference room's front door. It was jammed shut. The smoke was thick and choking. Colonel McNair and others dropped to their hands and knees to breathe. They crawled to the rear door, which opened into a dark maze of cubicles and office furniture. And we should warn listeners, some details in Colonel McNair's account are graphic. It was chaotic at this point. We were on our hands and knees, crawling around. People were moving in different directions. The speakers are going off saying, please evacuate the building. There was so much smoke, and you could see pockets of fire that we weren't sure how we could get out. The sprinklers came on, which we were very grateful for because we were getting pretty damn hot at this point. Just when we thought things were very dire for us. We came to an area where we began to see some light. We had come to an interior window. There was a young man there, an army specialist who was trying to, he threw a printer against it. I watched him throw this printer as we're crawling up. It bounced back and hit him. But the flight exploding uh, had knocked that window slightly off of its window jam. So The specialist and I sat up on that window jam and with our feet began to kick this window until we were able to pry it open just far enough that we could get people out. Much of the world knew already that was Flight 77 that crashed into the Pentagon. You knew nothing about the Twin Towers, right, at that point? That's correct. We did not know. And certainly, Hmm. if somebody had said to us, a plane has flown into the Pentagon at that point, we would have thought they were crazy. So we started lowering people out the window. Now, we're on the second floor. In an office building, a second floor is 15, 20 feet off the ground. It's not like being on the second floor of a home. Some people were kind of scared to get out, but they were more scared to stay in. So when we got everybody out, I took one last look around went back in and yelled a bit just to see if I could hear anybody else. Hearing nothing, seeing nothing, I couldn't breathe in this environment anyway. 
So I went out the window and jumped down to the road. Um, I've got to point out, you did get a soldier's medal for your heroism in 2001, in part because after you got out, you went back. Well, I just, I, I felt like uh, a, a significantly terrible thing had just happened. It wasn't time for me to go yet. People were working at ground level back inside the Pentagon uh, the, uh, where the wall had been breached. There were wires hanging down, sparking like in a horror movie. There was smoke pouring out. And I joined this group of people and we went in moving uh, office equipment out so we could reach people that were inside. We were able to get about seven folks out. One of the Pentagon uh, police officers came up and said, you guys got to get out of here. It was an airplane that, that hit the Pentagon, and we were kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, yeah, and they also hit the Twin Towers in New York City, and we've got word that there's another plane inbound, and you got to clear out of this area. Hmm. So that was the first we'd heard about an airplane. The, that was the flight that wound up in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. That's what I understand. So I walked down the road, walked through the tunnel to the courtyard of the Pentagon. There were some ambulances there. There were one of there was a man laying on a stretcher there. One of our guys, his name was John Yates, and I reached down to be face to face with him to let him know that you know, that I saw him and, and knew him and wanted him to feel okay. I, I tried to shake his hand and his skin just sloughed off in my hand. I, I didn't realize it just how badly burned he was. John ended up making it, but he suffered a lot of burns and was in the Washington Burn Center for a long time. So after I saw John and they took him away in the ambulance, I wasn't breathing too well at that time because of the smoke. And I went up to one of the ambulances and I said, can you just give me a couple of breaths of oxygen. You know, I must have probably looked like a zombie or something. They pulled me into the ambulance, started cutting my clothes off and hooking me up with oxygen and stuff. And so we're taking you to the hospital. I said, look, I'm not that bad. I just need to get some oxygen. No, you're going to the hospital. So off we went. I rode in the back of this ambulance and ended up at Virginia Hospital Center. Mm -hmm. Cell service it was probably just overloaded. My wife couldn't call. They couldn't call her. So she was in her own reality because she could see on the news, there's the part of the Pentagon that the plane hit and collapsed, and that was my office. 125 people in the Pentagon were killed and 59 on board the flight. You must have known many of the people who died in the Pentagon. Everybody who worked in my normal daily office, including my boss, all of our administrative staff, and many others there. I think 23 of our people were killed that day. I know, of course, you, you're in the military, and you understand that anybody in the military might pay that price. But still, to have so many people suddenly gone, what was it like for you? What have these last 20 years been like for you when you think of that? Well, in the, in the first weeks after, um, I think we were all kind of in a state of shock. We returned to work the next day, those of us who were able to do that, working out of temporary offices in Alexandria. And interestingly, without any coordination whatsoever, we all showed up in our battle dress uniforms. Those first few 
weeks. We went to funerals and memorial services. I don't know. I think I was numb through most of that. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing that buoyed our spirits a bit was the patriotism that this whole thing inspired. Everywhere you went on overpasses, you know, with flags hanging down and everything was very patriotic. But over the years, um, I don't I, I don't know how to describe it. I, I wonder, you know, what they would be doing today. Um, I feel guilty sometimes. You just you just continue and you live your life and you think it could happen to you, but be grateful for the time that you have. What's it like for you to see the pictures about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and members of the Taliban celebrating in the uh, in the presidential palace? I think it's completely disgusting. Leaving Afghanistan, particularly the way we did it, is just terrible. Most people, I don't believe, understand why we went to Afghanistan because 9-11 was so far away. I mean, they obviously went to Afghanistan because of what happened to us. Now you've got al-Qaeda and you've got the Taliban, you've got ISIS in there. And when we had a small presence there, we could at least have intelligence. We could at least run operations out of there. I think we've now lost the ability to gather that intelligence and to have a presence there. And I don't think we're ever going to be able to get it back. The country's just getting a black eye over it. What would you like people to know on this 20th anniversary? Boy, that's a, that's a tough one, Scott. I guess down deep, I've learned, uh, there are bad people in the world, no doubt. I mean, there are terrorists doing terrible things in all sorts of places and uh, treating people very badly. But there's also a lot of wonderful people, too. Colonel McNair, thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Scott. It was a privilege to talk to you. Sports and patriotism were connected long before the September 11 attacks. But soon after that day, 20 years ago, The two became indelibly linked. Sports stadiums, arenas, and fields became places where people grieved together and expressed their love for a shaken country. Over the next two decades, that mix of sports and patriotism evolved and became more complicated, as NPR's Tom Goldman reports. Twenty years ago, Bud Selig was nervous. 